We're continuing to go through 2 Corinthians this morning, picking up from and overlapping a little bit with part of the text that we covered last week. I want to say a few things about where we're going before we get started. This morning we'll be dealing with some fairly practical questions, some fairly practical issues. I've been surprised myself the past two weeks uh, over the more practical nature of the texts that we've come across. When I think of 2 Corinthians as a book, I think of it as one of Paul's more literary works with more poetic language, more imagery. And it is that, and we'll see that even more in our text next week. But even so, 2 Corinthians is still a book rooted in real life, on the ground, practical issues. And that gives us a moment to reflect on a truth about 2 Corinthians and about the Bible as a whole. The Bible is overwhelmingly a theology from the trenches and not a theology from an ivory tower. Now, don't get me wrong. I like ivory towers. I've considered trying to do further academic work, and so I'm attracted to ivory towers. But still, the Bible is not the product of an ivory tower. It is filled with 66 books that were written in the trenches of real life. And it is in the context of seeing, revealing, and reflecting on how God works in the trenches of real, everyday life that the scriptures emerge. Second Corinthians is a poetic book, and it is also written in the midst of real interpersonal conflict, and it involves real, practical questions. So that should serve as a reminder to us that God is present in the real-life, everyday messes that we deal with. This morning we'll read about one such mess that the Apostle Paul had to deal with. So we do have a somewhat practical lesson in today's text, but that doesn't make it unspiritual. In fact, in this text, we see how mundane conflict quickly connects us to cosmic conflict. So the sermon might start off sounding a little bit like a self-help talk, but it won't stay there. It won't end there. So bear with me and hang in there with me, and we'll walk through the implications of our text together. And so with that in mind, let's begin to consider our text. In 2 Corinthians so far, Paul has started by talking about suffering and comfort. Then he turned to defend his actions by saying that he loved the Corinthians and that he had loved them in his actions with a consistent love that saw them as they were and that then acted according to their needs. And now we're going to get more to the meat of Paul's conflict with the Corinthians and how he wants to proceed. So with that in mind, let's hear from our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Please listen carefully, for this is God's word for us this morning. Paul writes, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave from them and went on to Macedonia. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the grand pictures that it gives us of you and of your work in this world. And we thank you for the practical ways that it instructs us. We pray now that you would give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it for your glory and for our good. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, as I said, this may begin today sounding a little like a self-help talk, but it won't end there. So do bear with me. Our text this morning is about conflict. And so I want to ask and try to answer four questions together this morning. First, what do we usually do in conflict? Second, looking at Paul, what should we do in conflict? Third, why does it matter what we do in conflict? And fourth, how are we made capable of rightly handling conflict? So, when it comes to conflict, what do we do? What should we do? Why does it matter? And how are we able to do it? Let's go through them one at a time. So first, what do we do? What do we usually do in conflict? I'd like to suggest that when it comes to conflict, many of us tend towards either self-centered avoidance or self-centered confrontation. Let's consider each of those. First, some of us tend towards self-centered avoidance. This is where we decide not to do anything about the problem or the conflict that we have with someone else, but to just leave it alone. Often in our minds, we think of this as a merciful thing that we're doing. We think of it as loving the other person. We say to ourselves that we are turning the other cheek. We are not making a big deal out of something. But I think quite often our motivations are self-centered. Last week, uh, last Sunday morning, I used an extended medical illustration, so I hope you will forgive me and indulge me once more as I use another medical illustration this morning to make this point. But imagine with me a doctor who ran a patient's tests and found cancer. Treatable cancer, mind you, but cancer nonetheless. But he thought it over, and he reflected on how upsetting the news would be for the patient how difficult and painful the necessary chemo would be to treat the cancer. And he decided that it was best not to tell the patient. And imagine he saw this as a compassionate thing to do. He's avoiding exposing the patient to so much pain, he reasons. Surely this is a compassionate course of action. But of course, it's not a compassionate course of action. It's not a loving thing. The patient will die or likely die if the doctor does this. The patient does not benefit from this avoidance. The doctor just feels better himself for not having inflicted the pain of the cure on the patient. It is for that reason, primarily, a self-centered avoidance that the doctor is practicing. And that is the way that many of us are tempted to work in our relationships. 
We are tempted to leave a problem alone, to let the issue fester, all to avoid dealing with the conflict with that person. We may tell ourselves that we are doing this out of love, but often it's really self-centered. Because just as physical cancer left to itself can often lead to physical death, so spiritual cancer left to itself will often lead to spiritual death. Standing by and smiling and refusing to recommend chemo does not help the person with the affliction. Of course, another implication of thinking this way is that there are problems that we can leave alone. If a doctor determines that you just have a cold or a stomach bug, the right response is often to do nothing, to let it clear up itself. And when we have a minor conflict or we see a minor problem with someone, we often can and should just choose to overlook it. But what we're talking about this morning is something more serious. We're considering conflicts that arise out of either an acute and serious sin or an ongoing pattern of sin. An acute sin like a sudden onset of a life-threatening infection or a growing, ongoing pattern of sin like a cancer below the surface. Both need to be confronted. And so an insensitive comment from a friend may not need confrontation, but a pattern of dismissive words from a spouse probably does. A small outburst of frustration can probably be overlooked, but a larger outburst or a pattern of outbursts probably cannot. And yet it's often those patterns and those acute cases that we tend to avoid. They happen, they occur, and then we and the other person retreat to our corners. And then we come back together and act as if nothing had ever happened. But this avoidance is not loving. It's a refusal to confront a spiritual danger to the other person. And it's ultimately a self-centered avoidance. And if you ever think in your mind that this kind of conflict avoidance is a Christ-like option, I'd encourage you to go back and to read the Gospels again and to really look at Christ. There is a lot of conflict in the Gospels, and sometimes Christ provokes it himself. But whoever may start it, he never avoids conflict when it's possible to engage in it for the benefit of the other person. So some of us tend towards avoidance when we're faced with conflict. We want to smooth things over to dodge any real confrontation. But others of us often tend towards self-centered confrontation. This is a form of confrontation that's primarily concerned with our victory rather than the good of the other person. This is when we go into conflict with our primary goal as defeating the problem for our own satisfaction rather than engaging with the other person for their good. In his book, Technopoly, Neil Postman analyzes the worldview that underlies the tendency for some doctors to report in some medical cases that, quote, the operation or the treatment was successful, but the patient died. Now, we know what that usually means, of course. The operation was successful in eradicating the disease, but it also killed the patient in the process. But the wording, Postman argues, is significant. If this is labeled a successful treatment, it means that we're not seeing the job of the doctor primarily in terms of promoting and sustaining health, but in terms of eradicating disease. Now, obviously, a good doctor is aiming for both of those things, and they go together, but Postman argues that the language we employ shows which we give the primary place to in our minds. 
If the doctor's primary job is to promote health, then no treatment that causes the death of the patient would ever be labeled as successful. But if his primary job is to eradicate the disease, then a treatment could be labeled successful even if it kills the patient, so long as it also cured the presenting problem. That flip in perception of the doctor's role should bother us, according to Postman. But even more concerning is that many of us take the same view when it comes to confrontation, when it comes to conflict. We see our primary role as defeating the sin or the error of the other person. That is our main goal. And so if our attack on that sin or error crushes the other person in the process, well, that might not be the goal, but it could still be viewed as a success. The goal of confrontation is seen as winning, as defeating sin or error, and not primarily as working for the well-being of the other person. This view is also, ultimately, a self-centered view. It is a view that is more concerned with its own victory rather than the other person's well-being. And we do this a lot, I think, and not just with our enemies. We often do this with those who are closest to us. A friend once told me about his tendency to do this in arguments with his wife. They were both intelligent people, but he had a particularly good way with words, and often he could beat her in an argument. And he said that in those cases, finally, in frustration, his wife would look at him and say, okay, fine, you're right. But at the same time, he said he could always almost see a little thought bubble above her head that said, but you're still a jerk. And honestly, that's a more sanitized version than what he really expected she was thinking. But often, like my friend, when we find ourselves in a conflict, whether with an enemy or with our closest loved one, we find ourselves primarily focused on winning, on being right, on defeating the other person. And again, this is fundamentally a self-centered way to approach conflict. And so there are these two dominant responses that many of us have in conflict. And each can portray itself as a virtue. One takes self-centered avoidance and portrays it as loving patience. The other takes a lust for victory and portrays it as zeal for the truth. But neither works for the good of the other person. And both are ultimately self-seeking. So coming back to our first question, when it comes to handling conflict, what do we often do? Well, we often seek our own interests through self-centered avoidance, or self-centered confrontation. And that brings us to our second question. When it comes to handling conflict, what should we do? Looking at Paul, what should we do in conflict? And first we need to point out that we should look to Paul for guidance on this. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says to the Corinthian church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is seeking to imitate Christ before the Corinthians, and so he says they should imitate him. And the same applies to us. We can assume that Paul is seeking to handle this conflict with the Corinthians in a Christ-like way. And so we should look to him as a positive example. When we look at Paul's conflict with the Corinthians, the details of what's going on are unclear in terms of the nature of the problem. What is clear is that there was a man in Corinth and in the Corinthian church who was in sin. And the church was not doing anything about it. Some have identified this man in, as the same man that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who was guilty of incest. 
But really, there's nothing definitive in 2 Corinthians that would indicate that we're dealing with the same person or the same situation. So really, we don't know. But either way, the conflict Paul faces is disagreement as to how to handle the man's sin. So what does Paul do in this disagreement? Paul responds to the Corinthians with redemptive confrontation. Redemptive confrontation. What does that mean? Well, the first thing that we see is that it is confrontation, and it's not self-centered avoidance. Paul considered the situation and decided that the best way to confront the Corinthians was by letter and not by a visit. He mentions that in our text. But he does confront them. He sends the letter urging them to repentance. The safe move, the move that would have guaranteed temporary peace, would have been to just leave the situation alone. But Paul sees this sin as a dangerous cancer to the Corinthian church. So he writes them a painful letter. He confronts them because he loves them. So he confronts them, but it is a redemptive confrontation. It's not a self-centered confrontation. And we know this because written all over our text is the fact that Paul's primary concern was restoration and reconciliation and not his own victory. We see this in verse 4. The painful letter of confrontation was not written with hot anger or with cold, disconnected logic. It pained Paul to write it. We see the same thing in verses 12 and 13. Paul was waiting to hear back from Titus as to how the Corinthians received his letter. He was so concerned that when he got to Troas and when, and when an opportunity presented itself for ministry, Paul couldn't focus on it. He couldn't do it. So he left to go find Titus in Macedonia. Paul wrote with tears, and he awaited the reply with a love-motivated anxiety, concern for their well-being, and the restoration of their relationship. But Paul's redemptive approach is most clearly seen in verses 6 through 8. Since the offender has repented, Paul urges the church to forgive him, to comfort him, and to embrace him. Paul's goal is not victory, It is restoration. And he urges the Corinthians to forgive and embrace and restore the man. This is the pattern of redemptive confrontation that Paul employs. He does not seek to avoid conflict in order to protect himself. He does not seek to crush his opponent. Instead, what we see is a pattern of confrontation that's aimed at repentance and forgiveness with the ultimate goal of reconciliation and restoration. And interestingly, this approach follows the pattern of death and resurrection. Back in June, when we looked at the first 11 verses of 2 Corinthians, we noted how Paul described the pattern that God works through as one of suffering that leads to comfort. And how it does this in a way that reflects the pattern of Christ's death and resurrection. But that death and resurrection pattern comes up more than once in 2 Corinthians. Here we see it in Paul's discussion of pain and joy. In our text, Paul speaks repeatedly in our text about the pain of confrontation, but he always positions it as having the goal of joy, the joy of reconciliation. And so Paul's pattern of pain leading to joy through conflict, his pattern of redemptive confrontation is based again on the pattern of death and resurrection that we see in Christ. In Paul's mind, we endure suffering in this world because we know That in God's economy of death and resurrection, suffering leads to comfort. 
And now in the same way for Paul, we're willing to do the painful work of redemptive confrontation because we know that in God's economy of death and resurrection, the pain of confrontation leads to the joy of reconciliation. Far from an attack or an avoidance, redemptive confrontation is an invitation to repentance and forgiveness. It is aimed at restoration. It is not aimed at causing pain to the other while shielding ourselves from pain, but instead it's a willing acceptance of the shared pain of confrontation in the hope of the joy of reconciliation. So think again of our first two questions. When it comes to handling conflict, what do we normally do? We often seek our own interests through self-centered avoidance and self-centered confrontation. And second, what should we do? We should willingly take on the pain of redemptive confrontation for the goal of the joy of reconciliation, following the pattern of death and resurrection. And that brings us to our third question. Why does it matter? Why does it matter what we do in conflict? Why is it important? And I want to start by considering what kind of answers people typically give to that question. Our typical self-help type answers for why we should handle conflict in a more healthy way tend to be either psychological or sociological. So sometimes they're psychological. If we're going that route, I would remind you how unforgiveness or how hate or how avoidance all make you an unhappy and even a dysfunctional person. Other times we can try to answer that question by looking at the sociological factors. And so then we'd focus on how social groups and relationships break down when there's no forgiveness or if conflict isn't properly handled. Now, those answers are both true and they both tie into the ultimate answer, but they're not the ultimate reason that Paul gives for why the stakes are so high in this conflict. Paul's biggest concern is not psychological. It's also not sociological. Paul's biggest concern is cosmic. We see that right in verses 10 and 11. From the second half of verse 10, Paul writes, What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul has been focused in on this interpersonal conflict between himself and the church at Corinth. And just as we were settling into that framework, it is like in the middle of verse 10, the frame changes. In the middle of verse 10, Paul switches from a zoom lens and replaces it to a wide-angle lens. And all of a sudden, we see that Paul and the Corinthians are not the only ones on the field. They're not the only ones on the stage. Suddenly, we get the cosmic perspective. And we see that Christ and Satan are also on the field. In fact, they are the ultimate players in what's going on. It reminds me a bit of the book of Job. Try to imagine that you had just the middle of the book of Job. Imagine you had just the debate, the discussion, the interpersonal conflict. Imagine that you just had chapters 3 through 37. Chapters 3 through 37 of the book of Job are a discussion, a conflict between Job and four other men over what has happened to Job over why it has happened to Job. It is a 35-chapter-long debate about why Job has suffered misfortune. And it is the zoomed-in perspective. But you cannot understand the book of Job with only the zoomed-lens perspective. 
And that is why chapters 1 and 2 on one end and 38 through 42 on the other provide the wide-angle view. In the zoomed-in view on the ground, everyone evaluates what happened as if Job were the only real active player on the field. God might respond to Job, but Job is the primary actor in view. Everyone argues about how Job's actions may have led to the suffering that's in his life. But in chapters 1 and 2, we get the wide-angle perspective of what's going on. And we see that Job is far from being the only active player on the field. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that God and Satan are on the field, and they are very active. We see that God has challenged Satan to look at how faithful Job is. And Satan has challenged God as to whether Job's faithfulness will continue in the midst of suffering. In chapters 3 through 37, within the zoomed-in frame, Job's friends debate over what Job did to deserve his situation. In chapters 1 and 2, from the wide-angle view, we learn that Job has done nothing wrong to deserve what has happened. His life has become a battleground between God and Satan. And if anything, he was chosen as a battleground because of his faithfulness, not his sin. In chapters 38 through 42, at the end of the book of Job, God speaks... And his main point is not that Job's friends should have known exactly what had caused God's suffering. It is not that they should have seen what was happening from the wide-angle cosmic perspective. It's impossible. Their main error was assuming that there was no wide-angle view. They assumed that only Job was an active player on the field. They assumed that what they saw from their zoomed-in creaturely perspective was all that there was to see. But they should have known better. And Paul says that the same thing is going on in his conflict with the Corinthians. In fact, he basically says that the same thing goes on in every conflict. What we do in conflict, he says in verse 10, is always in the presence of Christ. Christ sees it. Christ is on the field. But also in every conflict, he says in verse 11, Satan is trying to outwit us. And he adds, we should know this. We are not ignorant of his designs, Paul writes. In other words, this should not come as a surprise to us. What Paul is getting at is that the ultimate significance of how you handle conflict is not your psychological well-being. It is not the social well-being of your relationships or your family. It's not even the psychological well-being of the other person in the conflict. Those things all matter, but they are not the ultimate significance of what happens in your interpersonal conflicts. Paul says that the the ultimate significance of how we handle conflict is about a cosmic battle between Christ and Satan that takes place in the scenes of our lives. Our personal conflicts are the battlegrounds of a cosmic war. That means that when you have a conflict with your spouse, it is not just the two of you who are in the room arguing, but Christ and Satan are lined up for battle. And their conflict is probably more important than yours. And very often their battle is at least as much about how the conflict plays out than who wins in the end. Paul would not win a victory for Christ by avoiding the conflict with the Corinthians. He had to confront them and to bring out the underlying issue. Because to not do that, to leave the sin unaddressed, would be to give a victory to Satan and not to Christ. On the other hand, Paul did not win a victory for Christ just by being right and just by winning. And we note that especially when we think of the context within which Paul is writing. Paul has already won the dispute. 
the other man has already been put under discipline. But Paul doesn't count it a full victory for Christ yet. In fact, it is at this very moment, after he's won the conflict, that Paul is worried about Satan outwitting them. He knows that if they don't respond to the repentant offender with love and forgiveness and reconciliation, then Satan has actually won the battle. More often than not, what determines the cosmic winner of a personal conflict, what determines whether the spiritual victory goes to Christ or to Satan, is less about who wins the argument and more about whether the people involved act in a way that reflects Christ redemptively or in a way that reflects Satan self-centeredly. The central issue is often whether they engage in conflict like Jesus or like the devil. And so returning to our four questions. First, when it comes to handling conflict, what do we often do? We often tend to seek our interests through self-centered avoidance or self-centered conflict. Second, what should we do? We should love the other person by engaging in redemptive confrontation. And third, why does it matter? It matters because our conflicts are battlegrounds between Christ and Satan, and more is at stake than first meets the eye. And finally, that brings us to our fourth question. How can we do it? How are we made capable of rightly handling conflict? We know that we need to engage in conflict redemptively. We know that it matters because it's not just us and other people who are on the stage, but Christ and Satan are also there. And the far more important story is being played out in their conflicts rather than ours. But how do we reflect Christ in those situations? How do we love the other person in the midst of conflict? How do we make the sacrifice of pursuing reconciliation and restoration? How do we forgive when someone else has hurt us, maybe hurt us deeply? How do we approach someone else with redemptive confrontation? Well, the answer is that we live in light of the fact that Christ has approached us with redemptive confrontation. Christ's incarnation as a whole and his death on the cross in particular is the central cosmic act of redemptive confrontation. And it was aimed at us. First of all, it was an act of confrontation. The scriptures repeatedly reveal our tendency to make excuses for ourselves, to minimize our sin, to put a positive spin on our actions and even on our rebellion against God. The cross confronts our tendency to do that head on. The cross says, do you know how far you have gone? Do you know how much damage you have done? In order to repair it, in order to make it right, God had to die. God had to die. If that's not a jolting confrontation, I'm not sure what is. You have messed up so badly that in order to pull you off the course that you would be heading on if left to yourself, God had to die. And that puts things in perspective. If you bear that in mind, it makes it a lot harder to be judgmental and vindictive towards those that we need to confront. But not only does the cross tell us that, God, that we messed up so badly that God had to die, it also tells you that God so longed for restoration with you that he was willing to die. In other words, the cross is not just confrontational, it is redemptive. It invites and makes possible repentance and forgiveness that lead to reconciliation and restoration with God. God could have avoided us after we rebelled. He could have left us to ourselves to sit in the mess that we had made. 
but he didn't. On the other hand, he could have just come down and crushed us. He could have destroyed sin and taken us out in the process. But again, he didn't. He chose instead to meet us with redemptive confrontation. And that is why we're gathered here this morning, to celebrate that redemptive confrontation. If we have that in mind, if that is a reality to us, then it becomes inconceivable for us to avoid confrontation and let someone else just wallow in their own sin. How can we who benefited so much from God's loving confrontation of us not lovingly confront someone else who needs it? On the other hand, remembering Christ's redemptive confrontation of us will also make it impossible for us to confront others from an arrogant, condescending, or vindictive disposition. How can we who experience such grace stand in judgment on someone else who needs the same grace that we do? So we see our four points. We see that often we approach conflict from a self-centered point of view. We see instead that we need to approach it, as Paul does, with redemptive confrontation. We see that this matters because there's more at stake in our conflicts than meets the eye, that there is a cosmic battle going on as well. And finally, we see that we can do this when we act in light of Christ's loving, redemptive confrontation of us that he accomplished at the cross. And so the final question we need to ask ourselves is where you need to apply this in your life. Where do you see conflict that needs reconciliation? Is it with a parent or with a child, with a spouse or with a friend, with a coworker or with a fellow church member? Maybe it's a conflict that's already flared up, or maybe it's a, it's a conflict that's simmering down below the surface. But either way, it's there, and it needs to be redeemed. So what is it for you? And I encourage you to really think of a situation that you have, a place that you need to see it where maybe you don't want to see it. Don't think right now of an example of where someone else needs to apply this to their lives, but think of an example of where you need to apply this to your life. What is it for you? How have you handled that particular conflict so far? Have you avoided it, tried to smooth it over? Or have you gone in for the kill, tried to crush the other person, tried to show them that you were right? And now what would it look like for you to imitate Paul? What would it look like for you to lovingly confront the other person towards the goal of reconciliation? What would it look like to have that difficult conversation, but to do it with your primary concern focused on the well-being of the other person? What would it look like for you to be willing to accept the pain that comes with that confrontation and to do it in the hope of the joy that comes with restoration? What does it look like to lovingly enter that confrontation with faith in the God who works through death and resurrection, the God who delights in raising the dead, who brings comfort out of our affliction? who brings joy through pain. And as you consider that, consider also whether you've had a tunnel vision about this relationship. Have you viewed it through a zoom lens, seeing only you and the other person? And what would it look like to switch now to that wide-angle lens and to consider how Christ and Satan are both active on the field? Because they are. You and the other person are not alone in the room. Satan is there, And Satan wants to destroy. He wants to destroy your relationship with your child or your parent, with your spouse or with your friend. He would delight in seeing your child go astray, 
your marriage fall apart, your friendship turn cold. He delights in such things and he wants to outwit you. And so how do you see him at work in your particular situation? But thankfully, he is not the only one who is at work, because most importantly, Christ is there as well. Christ is working to bring healing and wholeness, to bring restoration and reconciliation. And how can you see him at work? Where are there hints of resurrection in your situation? How do you want to act, knowing that this conflict is playing out in Christ's presence? And finally, consider where you're finding the motivation to do this. Make sure it is not from pride, but from remembering how you yourself have been lovingly and redemptively confronted by Christ. Do not come to cut down someone else in judgment, because that's not how Christ approached you. Do not leave them to themselves, because Christ did not leave you to yourself. Remember what he gave so that you could be reconciled to him. Remember the love that he gave so that you could be restored to health. And with the cross of Christ always in view, you can redemptively confront those who you need to in your life. 2 Corinthians 2, 1-11 gives us a theology of conflict from the trenches. It's not a theology worked out in an armchair. It is a theology worked out in the midst of real people and real hurt. And that is good. Because we live our lives worked out in the midst of real people and real hurt. And as we live out our lives with those people, let us remember Christ's redemptive love for us. And then let us seek to imitate Paul as he sought to imitate Christ. And in doing so, show forth Christ's love to one another. Amen.